Welcome to the Dearly Discarded Podcast, where we tell the true stories of the vaccine injured that many don't want to hear. These are real people sharing real experiences, uncensored and unsanitized. Listen and learn with us as we tell the stories that have yet to be heard by those who've been discarded. No preaching, no propaganda, and no judgments, just the truth. Hello and welcome to the Dearly Discarded Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Jared St. Clair, and it's good to be with you on another episode of the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to my next guest. His name is Sean Barkovich. He is a medical researcher and uh, is the perfect guy to talk to today about the new NIH study that was just released a few days ago. Sean, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jared. It's good to be here. So you are uh, uniquely uh, qualified to discuss this because not only are you a medical researcher by trade, but also, unfortunately, one of the people who was injured by a COVID vaccine. This study is all about a very small number of people that were uh, affected by the COVID vaccine in a negative way. It was released by the NIH and it needs to be discussed. I think there's a lot of information in here that is very valuable. Uh, There's a lot of information in here that's a little bit, uh, I'll say sketchy in my opinion, Uh, but some very interesting stuff nonetheless and I wanna go through it with you. So thanks for your time. Yeah, no worries. So maybe I can start with a little bit about myself if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Please do. So I'm a research nurse practitioner. I'm based in New York. Uh, up until my injury, I was actively engaged in in work, uh, mostly clinical drug trials. And prior to that, I, I worked as a nurse practitioner treating patients, um, mostly in the realm of infectious diseases. Um, now, since my injury, I, uh, I suffer quite a lot. I have severe tinnitus and uh, cardiac arrhythmias, um, and I've had neuropathies, uh, which are in remission at the moment, but my symptoms are still debilitating and they impact my ability to, to function um, in a full day. So uh, yes, I'm one of the injured. Uh, I'm also very interested in what happened to me and have been actively researching uh, myself since the start of my injury. All right. And you are not one of those that was included in this study. Is that correct? That's correct. I didn't even know, even though I work with people close to uh, the NIH, I had no idea that they were even looking at at these issues all the time I was suffering because uh, I had my vaccination early on as a healthcare worker uh, with my first dose in at the end of December of 2020. Oh yeah, very early on. Um, so the whole time that they were kind of looking at these participants or these in the study, I I had no idea. I was just out there, kind of floundering, uh, sick, wondering what happened to me, and looking desperately for help uh, everywhere. I started searching across across the country and the globe. Now, in your search, what, what did you find initially? Was it uh, difficult to find much information? It was. I think, you know, one of the things that I wanted to start with uh, in, in our conversation today was just the, how difficult it is 
uh, and was for me and still is for all the injured to actually get medical help. And I was shocked uh, for myself being, you know, in the profession, the medical profession, I, I thought, oh, you know, I'm going to get this vaccine if something goes wrong. I, ha I work in New York, top hospitals in the country. Uh, you know, my, everyone will come to my rescue to help me. And I very quickly found out that is not the case. I was left uh, pretty much alone, uh, desperate to convince people that this was even what was happening to me was uh, from the vaccine. So the, the struggle was real, was almost impossible to to get people to understand. I mean, granted, no one knew much either. Right. It was very new at the time. But still, I every everywhere I went and everyone I I ran in ran into for help. Their first premise was this couldn't possibly be, and I was always like, as a researcher, I was like, how how can you say that it can't possibly be? Why can't we start from the premise that this could possibly be and work the other direction? Um, I was really surprised why people were so quick to dispel. Uh, the possibility. And I was like, well, we have all these medications we give to people all the time with side effects and adverse reactions. And when somebody comes in with a rash from penicillin, we don't say, oh, it wasn't the penicillin here, take more penicillin. Right? We kind of take a step back, right? think, oh, this could be penicillin. Why don't we stop that drug, drug and see if your rash improves? So, yeah, quite a challenge to get uh, recognition. Um, and I think, you know, I can talk a little bit about why that is, I think, in my opinion, um, aside from also just, you know, not people, people not wanting to recognize the vaccine. Yeah, well, what do you think it is then? So I think, you know, we, when I look back at the course of my injury, you know, I, I had, I think, and I look at the others that I've come in contact with as, as we've connected uh, online, we have such a diverse, like myriad cluster of symptoms that on first appearance would, would look bizarre to a doctor or a neurologist, right? So if we go in, if I went in and I said, I have tinnitus, I have, I'm noticing I have tachycardia, I have increased anxiety out of nowhere, I can't sleep, um, I have uh, GI issues. It sounds like so crazy, right? Like how you can all of a sudden have this cluster of very diverse symptoms uh, that don't coalesce around, around common illness, right? So the doctors are like, hmm, this is strange. You know, are you sure it's not anxiety? Are you sure, you know, you're just not, you know, manifesting this uh, because of, you know, your stress or other things going on in your life? So they, they're quick to dispel. I think I have some slides here that you can show that kind of show the diversity of... Yeah, I was just going to say, let's go ahead and talk about these some of these symptoms for sure yeah so first off we're looking at a slide here on sorry symptoms of small fiber neuropathy uh, most people have heard of neuropathy uh, but maybe run through this a little bit for us 
Yeah. So, you know, small, the, most people, when they think of neuropathy, they think of pins and needles or, you know, uh, little stings and stabs, mostly in diabetics, right? We always hear of diabetic neuropathy, um, which is, has a, often a pretty clear pattern. We call it hand glove. Usually it's like starts from the feet and ascends. Um, but in some cases it can be patchy around the body as nerves get damaged from uh, the increase in uh, glucose and instability. But in our cases, you know, when we're talking about small fiber, small fiber nerves really run everywhere in the body. And it's not just your toes and your fingers. Small fibers connect it to a lot of vital bodily functions. So small fibers innervate the brain. They innervate uh, the stomach. Um, they're also along our skin. Uh, you know, and they, they go into every corner of our body. They can affect muscle. So that's why you see like somebody presents, it's more than just pins and needles. It can be fatigue. Um, it can affect your ability to sweat. You can get dry, irritated eyes, uh, difficulty breathing. You can get increased heart rate um, and then disc difficulty with bowel and bladder. So it's, it's no surprise when somebody goes in with this cluster of symptoms, doctors are just like scratching their head thinking, oh, this isn't you know, you, this isn't an illness I've seen before. Right. Cause it's so it's, it's all over the place. It seems pretty hard to pin down, but then the question, you know, comes back for me anyway, to the same point that you made earlier, which is why immediately rule out this most recent event, uh, in this case, a vaccine that is an experimental use vaccine, uh, that uh, you received in the last, you know, couple of weeks or a month or whatever it's been since you started uh, experiencing symptoms. And, and I think the words, you know, we talked a little bit before we got online here today, and I think the words safe and effective uh, have really been almost weaponized here to make it seem impossible that these types of symptoms could actually occur from something that is as, quote unquote, safe and effective as these vaccines were purported to be. Yeah, I think that's a big part of the case. So I think the messaging, of course, the messaging was there because people, you know, I, I get the scientist in me gets the fact that, you know, we needed methods to end the pandemic. Vaccines were a quick tool, uh, you know, that, you know, that historically we leaned on heavily to do that. However, you know, these were new types of vaccines, um, and we didn't. We don't have a lot of long-term safety data in humans. So, the research scientist in me, and somebody who's I'm very pro-science and like very pro-vaccine my entire life. So I, you know, I'm, I'm. If you, if I tried to imagine this two years ago before the pandemic, being in this position, and even thinking outside the box on these things, I would tell people you're crazy, but here I am, I'm injured and I'm thinking outside the box. And so I do think that was a driver of, you know, a, a lot of people's quick quickness to just dispel any association. Yeah, it certainly seems to be the case um, as far as the, it, which really creates a, a significant disconnect too, like you said, because then they're left with, 
well, what are the other possibilities? And if there are no other possibilities that make sense, then what do you do about it, right? Then the only thing you can do is uh, send people home with a diagnosis of anxiety or something like that, and maybe some uh, uh, mild pain relief like ibuprofen or something. Right. I mean, because imagine you come in. Oh, I was just going to add, imagine if you come in and you say to a neurologist, like a doc, your primary doctor, oh, I, I have upset stomach or my stomach doesn't feel like it's working right. I'm having heart palpitations. Those are all symptoms of anxiety. They are there. You know, if you look under anxiety, you can have that whole umbrella. So I could see why they quickly want to run in that direction without giving real consideration to why somebody a few days after a vaccine would have this myriad of strange symptoms. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it does make sense uh, from from that point of view, for sure. So let's uh, pull up this uh, dysautonomia. Now, this is one I would anticipate that a lot of people listening, uh, unless they've been affected by these vaccines, probably have not has not heard of uh, this dysautonomia. So let's talk about what that is and, and what it entails. Right. So when we think of small fiber and neuropathy, like I said before, we always think pins and needles in our hands and toes and things we call paresthesias. Um, but the the small fibers you know, also are connected to our autonomic nervous system. And there can be a lot of dysfunction there. And when your autonomic nervous system is out of whack, your whole body is out of whack because the autonomic system kind of regulates all your, almost all your bodily functions. Uh, You know, if you look, if you think back to biology, we have two components of our system, right? We have the sympathetic and the parasympathetic the sympathetic makes us sort of activates things and the parasympathetic sort of quiets things in our body and if there's dysfunction in that again here you see people could have you know nausea vomiting diarrhea they could have cardiovascular symptoms urinary symptoms they could have orthostatic intolerance that means when every time you go from sitting to standing your blood pressure could fluctuate your heart rate could go up Um, You could have neurological deficits. I mean, so many. So again, presenting with these cluster of symptoms would really throw off a lot of people's primary care doctors and they would just be, you know, astounded or struggle to try to put pieces together to understand what's going on. And I would just end with one more thing, you know, and I don't want to poo-poo on a lot of people in medicine because, you know, even before even outside of vaccine injury, people with dysautonomia, they uh, struggle to get a diagnosis for decades. So sometimes people who have this, uh, these symptoms, they'll go from doctor to doctor to doctor, see hundreds of doctors and never get a diagnosis for decades until they find one person who really understands what this disease means. There are very few experts in this realm in the United States. So I could see why people uh, around like the injured are getting, uh, having trouble getting care. So a typical MD isn't going to be well trained in dysautonomia, trying to being able to spot that uh, and neurologists as well. No, even a lot of neurologists. Yeah. Even a lot of neurologists are not experts in this. Um, You know, if you go to um, dysautonomia international, the organization, they have a list of providers that are proficient. 
And I think in the state of New York, there's just a handful of people. In New York City, I think there might be two. And if you don't know what you what you don't know what you have in the first place, then you don't know how to go find those people, right? Yeah, that's really interesting. So do you know, uh, I'm just curious, I don't know the answer to this, I'm not sure if you do, but how uncommon is dysautonomia? It's, I don't know the percentages off the top of my head, but it's a not, it's not a common illness. Let's say that because if it was very, if it was very common, people would recognize it. I think the POTS component is more common because cardiologists will, you know, test for a lot of this in people who they see have the positional tachycardia component. That means like when you go from sitting position to standing and all of a sudden your heart rate jumps above 30 beats a minute and your blood pressure might drop, that's, that's, let's say, more commonly seen by cardiologists. And there's testing for that. And among the vaccine injured that I've spoken to, POTS seems to be almost uh, across the board something that they experience. Has that been what you've seen as well? That's right. It's a, it's a, it's a very common thread among, uh, among the neurological injury, injured. I have it in my case. Okay. So then as someone who's vaccine injured, you're dealing with probably anyway, uh, a lot of these types of symptoms that we're talking about, the small fiber uh, neuropathy. You're also talking about possibly the POTS and other dysautonomia related symptoms. And the experience that seems to be pretty universal here, unfortunately, again, based on my experience, meeting with and discussing this with a lot of people who've been injured, uh, just trying to figure out what the heck is going on uh, and and is there even a treatment for it has been one of the biggest stumbling blocks in the way of trying to get help is A, not knowing what it is and B, not knowing what to do about it uh, because they don't know what it is, right? So this study, let's go back to the study here because I think this is really interesting because at least in theory, what we have here coming from the National Institutes of Health, uh, the the same people, of course, that were um, telling us that these vaccines were safe and effective and, and the best answer when it comes to COVID. So they released this study and it's an interesting study because there's some big names uh, here, some very well-respected researchers. Uh, we have uh, from the NIH, um, Dr. Nath, Dr. Uh, I'm hoping not to butcher these names, Safavi and uh, Gustafsson, uh, Wallet, uh, Leakey, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, uh, Weibold and, and uh, Mina. And then you've got from the Harvard Department of Neurology, uh, Debashi, and from Mount Sinai Department of Neurology, uh, Susan Shin, Johns Hopkins Department of Neurology. Uh, you've got a couple of doctors there, Dr. Pan and Dr. Poladefkis. And then from Thomas Jefferson University Department of Neurology, uh, Anne Louise Oaklander. So this is like a who's who, as, as far as I understand, of, of uh, neurological experts in the field. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think these are the top neurological experts in our country. And so then the hope would be that they've uncovered some things that could be really, really helpful. And that's what I want to dig into uh, with you here. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and turn it back over to you on these slides. Uh, let's talk about uh, what this study actually uh, encompasses. 
Right. So in a nutshell, this is, I think that looking at the abstract here, what they saw was various peripheral neuropathies, uh, particularly those with sensory and autonomic dysfunction, like we talked about before on those two slides, they, they see that they may occur during or shortly after the acute COVID illness, right? But also they're seeing, um, they're suspecting that this could also occur after the vaccine. Now, my, uh, when in my initial reading of this, and I, I looked at the background and objectives, I thought I saw that they were quick to acknowledge that these occur after COVID illness, but there was no real reference incited after that sentence. But after vaccine, they left it as a possible, as a suspicion, but yet, yet to be confirmed. Remains unknown. Um, yeah. Yes, remains unknown. But I was like, well, that leaves me puzzled, you know, because we're, we're, we're able to definitively say it seems that all like similar symptoms of neuropathy and, um, and POTS and uh, dis, dysautonomy can, can occur in COVID illness for sure. But after the vaccine, well, we don't know. It, we, it's a, it's, it remains unknown. So a little bit discouraged there. Well, and the big difference, sorry, coming from a, uh, an angle of, of not being a medical researcher and just kind of reading this as a layman here, it does seem to me, though, that there that's really the big difference right there is that they don't rule out the possibility that COVID could cause these things right out of the gate, right? Somebody gets COVID and, and everything's on the table as to what could potentially come from that. And so there isn't this immediate dysmissal of the possibility that COVID could cause dysautonomia or COVID could cause POTS or COVID could cause small fiber neuropathy. But there is this disengagement, I guess, from the possibility that the vaccination could also cause uh, similar symptoms. And it, it seems it seems very confusing uh, to me uh, that, that that would be the case. All right, go ahead and continue. Sorry about that. Right. I think they're drawing upon, I think they, they, yeah, I think they're just drawing upon the fact that, you know, there's, we do see a lot of sequelae post-viral infection. So it's natural to want to lean in that direction and attribute these ongoing uh, symptoms that we see after the COVID infection. I think when you roll out something new, like a new vaccine, it's a bit of a struggle, right? Um, to, to really know what's attributable and what's not. So that's why you have these studies. And, and thankfully, they, did, they are looking at this now. So I have to say, I was really happy to see that some people were being studied and they're bringing attention to this so that the other thousands behind them can possibly get the help that they need and the recognition. I was just going to say, and being studied by the right people, it seems, the people that uh, should you know, be the most expert in this area. So it is encouraging, at least on that level. Right. So the study was, that what they did is they had 23 people um, that were self-referred. Um, I understand many of them were also in the medical profession and, and knew of NIH. So they managed to get themselves there uh, to get attention. And, and of course, some were not. Um, but it was an observational study of these 23. So it wasn't the highest uh, or the most uh, 
robust or gold standard in studies, right? An observational study is you just bring people in, you kind of observe them, you gather all the information, you look at them over a period of time, and maybe you give some treatments to them and you observe. There's no like control group or, you know, placebo. It, it is what it is. It's the 23 presenting with symptoms. Let's observe them. So they observe them for a period of 12 weeks, it seems, from the study. They collected data and they gave some treatments to them. Uh, and then they looked at the response over that short window. Um, I think it's limited in that it, you know, in that it did only look at a small number of people and it was only a short period of time. Um, this is a little bit about the demographics here. So uh, 23 people, most of them were female, uh, 92%, and the median age was 40. The age range was 27 up to 69. All of them reported sensory symptoms. 61% uh, had this orthostasis. That means this instability in, in blood pressure with position. Heat intolerance palpitations. Um, none of them had a previous neurological illness, uh, and 52% had uh, ev objective evidence of small fiber uh, neuropathy. So, yeah, the 0% had previous neurological illness is a pretty big number, a pretty small big number to me. Uh, so this is new in all, all 23 patients. Um, and then, yeah, obviously some very similar uh, symptoms across the board, it looks like. And then we'll move on to the next uh, objective findings that they had there. Yeah, so these are some of the objective findings. And you see here a lot, like we talked about before, autonomic and small fiber neuropathy. Seven of the 12 had reduced distal sweat production. So there's actually a test you can do for that where they attach... Uh, special device to your skin and they can measure your res sweat response. And if your sweat response is reduced, that means your autonomic system isn't working very well. Hmm. Um, Interesting. So seven of 12 had that dysfunction. Six of the 12 had this positional tachycardia. 31% um, had um, diagnostic subthreshold epidermal norite. This is looking, this is partly when they looked at the, in order to diagnose small fiber neuropathy, what they do is they, they take a biopsy of the skin, like a little punch biopsy. And then they look at it and they stain it. And they try to look at uh, several things. They try to look at the, how many nerve endings are in that sample you took. And then are there anything else appearing in there that shouldn't be in there? Um, in the standard biopsies that we do in the non-research world, we're just kind of looking at how many nerve fibers are there, uh, you know, in density. So, and then if the, there's a sort of a, a standard by age of how, what's the average number you should have? And say that like I'm 50, I was 51 at the time of my injury when they did my biopsy, they counted them and then they looked at the standard population of what, how many should somebody at, the, at that age have uh, nerve endings in their punch biopsy. 
And if you're low, that means there's a problem. And I was, mine was low, was left less than the fifth percentile at my calf. So that's what they're talking about here. So they, they did these biopsies and they saw that some, you know, several had this dysfunction, that there was uh, either damage or nerve loss. Um, interestingly, um, 100% of all the MRIs were normal. And this goes back to what I was talking about in the beginning when you asked, why, were so, why are so many people having trouble getting care? It's because if you go in with these symptoms, right, these very strange cluster of symptoms, most doctors are going to run the basic labs that they know, like a CBC, a metabolic panel. They may run an MRI um, and everything comes back normal, right? Because these aren't tests that show autonomic and small fiber dysfunction. They may even go as far as to run a few preliminary autoimmune labs for like lupus. Like for me, they kept testing me for lupus and Sjogren's. And I'm educated medical professional. And I'm like, would you please stop testing me for lupus and Sjogren's? I don't think that's what I have. You know, I don't, I'm not presenting with lupus and Sjogren's symptoms necessarily. I get that they have to check it, but I'm like, could we also look elsewhere? So I think that's a struggle. Everybody runs this battery of like normal te of testing and it all comes back normal. That just adds to, um, the despair of the patient and and it doesn't help the the doctor uh in in formulating a diagnosis and it all it does is just elevate them to give the diagnosis of anxiety right okay so what else do we have here you've got the uh so next slide here. So we talked a little bit about who how, who was in it, what kind of study it was. So what did they find, right? So I said that most people, when they go to their doctor with these this cluster of bizarre symptoms, they get the routine testing, they get the MRI, everything came back normal. But what they found in this study is when they looked at the skin biopsies of some of the participants, they found uh a protein in there um, that shouldn't be in there. Um, and it was it's called C4D. And this goes back to something we learn in biology that is super complicated. It's called uh, the complement system or complement cascade. And the best way to explain this to people who aren't uh, biologists is that we have as humans this 24-7 surveillance system in our body that's always on alert right so there's uh proteins running around our body or complexes and they're always constantly scanning for foreign bodies and so say we get vaccinated right we're getting a foreign substance put into our body and that substance is triggering our body to make a pro the spike protein, for example, in the COVID vaccine, that's a foreign entity. So when that foreign entity is going around, what our body's supposed to do is make an antibody, look at it, make an antibody to it, and then it should get destroyed and cleared from our bodies over time and we retain the antibody, right? And that system that does that is called the complement system. And it's super complex. This is a very simplistic representation, what you're looking at here. 
But if something goes wrong along that cascade and what it's like, I think I was explaining to somebody the other day, it's like, it's like uh, your body is like a community and there's a house on fire in the community. The person in the house is yelling to the neighbor, my house is on fire. The neighbor's telling another neighbor, another neighbor's calling the fire department. The fire department's coming to put out the fire. So there's a lot of elements, right, in the cascade to to finally get something to circle in to finish the job. And so if something breaks down in that system and goes haywire, you get a disimmune response to the vaccine. And so in some cases they think or they suspect that one of these proteins uh, called C4D gets activated and it gets pumped out in the system. And this protein is very sticky and it tends to stick to endothelial cell walls. And endothelium is the wall linings of our vessels, our blood vessels. And this is really important because in the next slide, you're gonna see our blood vessels and nerves run together, right? Nerves need a blood supply in order to survive. And if this gets stuck somewhere in the micro level, like at a capillary or the blood that's feeding the nerve, and it blocks blood flow to the nerve, the nerve's going to get damaged and die, and you're going to get symptoms of pins, needles, zaps, stings, stabs, burning sensations, um, all these paresthesias. And so they think that that's possibly one of the things that might be happening and why people get this neuropathy. Sean, explain really quickly uh, the term paresthesia, please. Yeah, so that's just a term that means uh, sen abnormal sensations. So it can be, it's like the umbrella term for all the things we like we feel, like pins and needles, stings, stabs, like some injuries say it feels like bees stinging or burning, any kind of abnormal sensory sensation. Okay, thank you. Just want to make sure everybody's clear on that. So then this process that is... Is this information that you're sharing right now, it, uh, this is coming from the actual NIH paper itself? Yes. So in the paper, they okay. say they looked at skin biopsies from five patients and participants. And in those patients, they found this deposition of complement uh, when they stained the biopsy. Now, this isn't something that can be tested. Like if you went to your neurologist's office and they did a a skin biopsy for small fiber, they're not going to look for this when they send it to the lab. This is really in the research realm because it requires a very extensive process to scan in special microscopes to look for that. Okay. But they did but find they this did in look the paper. for it in the study. Okay. Correct. And so then as someone who is listening to this uh, and is injured, uh, what's what can they use from this study to potentially help them get better care? So I think we'll come to that. Let's look at okay. the next here and we'll look at uh, the other things they think is going on. And then we'll look at what they tried and see if what they say helped people. So when this blood nerve barrier gets disrupted, You'll be, as we saw before, you'll get these symptoms uh, of small fiber neuropathy. 
and they're very diverse. I remember my own injury. I had those paresthesias, those sensations up and down my right arm where I had my first vaccine into my face and even my eye. Uh, for days, I kept putting gel uh, for dry eye in my eye because it felt like something was sticking in my eye all the time. It was just the right eye, everything on the right side. So I had like the paresthesias. I had on my face paresthesias, like pins and needles. I had it in my eye. I had ear flushing. And that was just after the first dose. And they think... You know, going uh, when we when we think about that and what they also saw in the report is that sometimes you get one dose. Some people had some symptoms, but if you got a second dose, it re within that short period of like three weeks for Pfizer or four weeks for Moderna or, you know, whatever other it, the time frames are for the other vaccines. But uh, when you got a second dose, sometimes those symptoms worsened. So why any medical person on this planet who sees somebody who had an, any kind of injury after the first dose would recommend them to get a second dose is beyond my comprehension as a medical provider. I, I think in my case, that was recommended to me. And I look back and I think, God, what a mistake what medical professional would recommend somebody who had a reaction after something get another? All right, Sean, are you there? I'm here. Can you hear me? Okay, we lost you a little bit there for a minute. Yeah, um, dropped out. Okay, so I did miss the last uh, couple minutes of what you said, but I think it probably got recorded. Mm -hmm. um, well, I just repeat, I, I was just saying about if you get it, like in my case, I had a... I had a smaller reaction after the first dose, but I still okay. had a reaction. I went to see a neurologist, told him I was having a neurological reaction. And then I was advised to get a second dose. And the second dose worsened my symptoms exponentially. It basically lit me on fire from head to toe. I mean, I... Uh, I went from having minimal symptoms to like my whole body being ravaged, my autonomic system, all my nerve fibers. I had tachycardia. I got tinnitus in my ear. I, and so I was just saying that, you know, anybody out there in the medical profession who sees an injured person from this vaccine come in with a reaction after the first dose should never recommend somebody to get a second dose. It's just against medic, good, sound medical practice. And yeah, and it's interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, I was just going to say, you're not the only one I've heard that from, uh, th that people were encouraged to get a second one, even though the first one seemed to cause some issues, even though those issues, you know, kind of alleviated after a while, like in your case, because, yeah, once that second one hits with someone who's already had a response, it seems to me it's almost guaranteed they're going to have some significant issues with that second one as well. Yes. And I was told by these some of these top experts when I reached out to them about my case that this was a disimmune response. And so if you have a disimmune response to this, you don't want to repeat it. Yeah, for sure. 
So it's mind-boggling to me out there, the rationale that people are making to force people to get a second dose. In fact, in my case, I would have rather take my chances with COVID than what happened to me because my heart is so damaged. My ears are so damaged that is uh, my daily functioning is debilitating. I, I have these windows where I can function, and then by 2 in the afternoon, I'm, I'm like collapsing. Well, one of the things that I thought was interesting, too, you know, just when we were arranging this, uh, you know, you, you told me that it kind of all depends on the hour, uh, you know, how functional I'll be and how my neurons will be firing and everything else. And so I think we seem to be catching you in a pretty good spot today, but uh, this isn't always the case. No, mornings tend to be better. I'm fresher for the first few hours in the morning, but by three, four, five, I'm like head and hands dragging, heart arrhythmias, ears blaring. It's, uh, it's, it's tough. And unfortunately, that's all too familiar too, based on what I've heard that the first half of the day can go okay. And then it just sort of spirals out after that. So, uh, well, it's the, the challenges that anyone who's been injured by these vaccines face are there's so many different challenges because, you know, we've already talked about the diagnostic uh, issues with it. We've also talked about the treatment issues and the fact that, you know, most people, most doctors uh, aren't really uh, expert enough in these areas to even help people, uh, let alone understanding, you know, that the vaccine could even be, you know, a root cause of these issues. But then the the next thing, of course, is the actual dealing with the injury itself and, and uh, you know, the loss of, of time, the loss of, uh, of uh, being able to work in most cases. Seems like most people have been forced out of their employment because they're no longer capable of doing the job they used to do. Uh, and, you know, the list just goes on and on. And, and certainly my heart goes out to anybody who's dealing with this. It's uh, got to be a unbelievable challenge right no i was saying you know the other day to somebody who was uh, who called me who was injured and having a rough day and i said you know when if and when we ever get to the time when these reactions are recognized and people can get uh treatment the the other factor that's missing is that we all will need treatment for the ptsd part because imagine most of us who did this, we were the most pro-vaccine people in the country. We stepped up. Many were joined uh, the vaccine trials. We were willing. We were interested. We were pro-science. We were doing what we thought was the right thing. And then when you get injured, you realize you're alone. No, no one knows that. No one tells you that, right? Because there's no real fully informed consent. If something happens to you, I found out I am alone and I'm on my own. I'm sick and I need to fight a battle. And no one is coming to help you. No one. And that for me was tra traumatic. It's still traumatic because I am a healthcare professional. I thought I would get 
the best help, people coming to my rescue, people interested in what went wrong. That also puzzled me. When I would show up and say I got severe tinnitus after the vaccine, oh, maybe you just had sudden hearing loss at the same, no interest whatsoever, no curiosity, nothing. Nothing. It was devastating. I was like, my whole life was destroyed and my career and nothing. No one there to help you. Nowhere to turn. Well, and that's why we named the podcast what we did, Dearly Discarded, uh, because people like yourself truly have been discarded to a very large degree. And, you know, one our, our mutual friend, uh, Brianne Dressen, who, of course, organized, uh, co-founded React 19 uh, that we work with, um, you know, in, in uh, one of the hearings, I believe it was the Ron Johnson hearing, you know, one of the things that I thought was so powerful that she said was, if you get COVID-19, there is help for you. Uh, if you get the COVID-19 vaccination and you get injured, there is no help for you. And That's that exactly is right. an absolute uh, shame. And, and it's really inexcusable. Uh, but it's the world that we're in. So then the question I have next uh, is we still have a couple of slides that I want to go through. I want to make sure that the, really the, the goal here. I think for for both of us is to shed light on what is actually, I guess, actionable inside of this uh, study. Mm -hmm. You know, what can people actually use this for? Uh, people who've been injured, uh, friends and family of those who've been injured, and then also shed some light on the fact that at least uh, there is somebody looking at this, and and the somebodies that are looking at it seem to be the right people to look at it. Uh, but I want to talk uh, in a little bit more detail about uh, the rest of what we found in the study and make sure that we don't leave right. anything out. So let's jump to this next slide and talk about the autoantibodies. Right. So they also, in, the, in addition to the C4D, which they found and alluded to the possibility of causing uh, dysfunction, they also alluded to the possibility of the development of autoantibodies. And um, what what they think is that one possibility is that when this when the immune system is so overwhelmed and there's so much spike going around, again, a disimmune response can occur, and somehow the body can be triggered to develop antibodies uh, against some of your own uh, cellular systems. And like we see in COVID, we know there's been some research where they found anti-ACE2 antibodies. Um, so, and we know ACE2, um, is, for non-biological people, it's a cell that's uh, it's a, uh, it's a component that's found all around our body. So there's ACE2 receptors on our cells everywhere. A lot of the times we hear of it in terms of regulating blood pressure, and you'll hear people you know, say their doctors prescribe me an ACE inhibitor or things, but this is really much more than that. ACE2, we found through research, lines everywhere. There's ACE2 in our digestive system. There's ACE2 in the inner ear, and there's some thinking maybe that's why we developed tinnitus after this, that somehow our own bodies 
in while learning to develop antibodies against the spike, developed antibodies on antibodies. It's called anti-idiotypic antibodies. And these also, even though they're like uh, not antibodies against spike 2, but they're formed out of the same process, they can attach also, you see here, to ACE2 receptors and then interrupt the signaling that's going on. And that could give us symptoms. So it's a it's another complex area. But in in a nutshell, what they think is there as part of this disimmune response, there could be the development of autoantibodies. So antibodies attacking some components of our own body. So that would be an autoimmune response. An autoimmune response, yeah, or a dis, yeah, uh, yeah. So you have disimmune where the dis the immune system's dysfunctional. And then you have autoimmune where the immune system was dysfunctional, created a dysfunction that now attacks your own body. And that's autoimmunity, autoimmune disease. And do I understand correctly that a lot of people that are dealing with vaccine injury do have uh, autoimmune-like uh, symptoms that they're dealing with? We, we do. So some of these same symptoms can be caused uh, by auto autoantibodies so just like we saw c4d how it can deposit and cause neuropathy also autoantibodies against some of these uh cellular functions like ace2 or we we even seen in even my own case i developed antibodies against beta and alpha adrenergic and muscarinic cholinergic receptors um, i have anti-mass one receptor antibodies so and in order to find that out i had to send my blood to germany because they are one of the only countries uh that have researchers looking into those types of uh autoantibodies here in america we're only at the four i think there's only a few people that have been looking at anti-ace 2 in long covid but interestingly in the paper what they note is the mimicry that's going on and how a lot of people with the post-vaccine syndrome look a lot like long COVID syndrome. A lot of the same symptoms occurring. So that makes us wonder, is it related to the development of autoantibodies, either post-viral infection itself or post-vaccine? induced from the spike protein to be continued we don't know yeah i was going to say the that question remains unanswered right at this point right okay uh we ready for the next slide here yeah so this is just a little bit about the limits and considerations so um, like I, I was saying, I think it's a small patient population that was studied, so that's limited. It also was an observational study. They're not the most scientific and robust because you don't have um, uh, placebos or controls. Uh, you're, it's also they were people were evaluated for a short period of time. So in the study, they did do some interventions. So they gave people long and short courses of steroids. And then they gave uh, three people intravenous immunoglobulin therapy. 
And if you read the paper, uh, in the short follow-ups, it makes it sound like everybody kind of had some recovery or full recovery, or the majority did. Um, but I think we know from the injured community, very few people are, are fully recovered. I think even people we know who have been a part of this study uh, are not fully recovered. I think they've been improved, but their symptoms are not. They can't say that they're, they're fully back to 100%. And your audio cut out on me again just for a second, so I didn't catch that. Uh, Very few people are uh, in the community or are uh, recovered. Is that what you said? Right. I think we, we, like I said in the study, they've tried steroids, both oral and intravenous, and they tried intravenous immunoglobulin. And I think in, we know some, uh, you know, some people from the study and they aren't fully recovered, um, even though it says here in this short period, this, this short snapshot they looked at, they said that they were recovered. Um, but also myself and others in the community that have tried steroids, I have tried immunoglobulin therapy and plasmapheresis, I get short-term relief, but I'm not fully recovered. Yeah, and that's a, a, I don't know, a better word for it than mysterious, I guess, uh, because the, you know, of course, we know that uh, Brianne, uh, who we mentioned before, is one of the participants in this study. And we know that she still struggles with uh, her symptomology to this day, even though she's listed as fully recovered, according to the uh, paper itself. Uh, what are your thoughts on how how these people are listed as fully recovered when we know that they aren't? I mean, so I think I, I, I can only imagine that because it's a short window and I mean, it's based, it's supposedly based on telehealth visits and report backs from patients. So it would be, you know, interesting to see more of that data that was collected and how patients reported back. But I think, you know, we're only looking at a 12-week snapshot. So if somebody says, I took some steroids, I felt better, was that sustainable? What about at six months? What about at eight months or 12 months? Like, where where are they now, right? So that's the limitation. We don't know. So somebody could have said, yeah, I got high-dose steroids. And, you know, if you give me high-dose IV steroids, I'm, I'm probably going to feel phenomenal for a few days because steroids just ramp you up, right? But withdraw them and watch me over six months, how, how am I doing at six months? So I think that's the limitation of the study. We don't know um, long-term. Help me out with this because I don't understand how this process works exactly, but this is a preprint uh, uh, study. Uh, when this, assuming this study actually gets published, how different might it look at, at the date of publishing versus what we're looking at right now? I mean, it can be accepted as it is, or it could they could go back and you know ask uh, for you know, or be it could just be rejected and it goes back and people try to rewrite or you know make it uh, more acceptable or fill in any gaps or questions that uh, might have been asked or you know uh, in order to make it more 
would this be in the peer review process then at this point? Is that what this is? Um, I don't, I don't know exactly where this one is sitting right now, okay. to be honest. I just, I just I know it's curious. in preprint. I, yeah, I don't know, um, where, where it is in its stages or who they've even submitted it to. Um, so I think that's still unknown. All right. So I would like to, if it's okay with you, I'd like to kind of wrap things up with um, maybe just a quick list of bullet point takeaways uh, for those who are listening. Um, you know, now that we've gone through it in some depth, uh, what would you say are the basic uh, takeaways that people can uh, use from this study? I think uh most important thing is it is one of the first studies on neurolo neurological after, after effects of the vaccine. I think it's somewhat validating even though there's some hesitancy written into it. I think it's quite clear that these people all had injury after after the vaccine. I think there's two underlying uh hypotheses about the etiology whether it be C4D deposition or some auto uh, autoimmune component. Um, I think uh, we know that routine testing isn't going to show much, that you need tilt tables and skin biopsies in order to identify uh, some of these injuries. Um, I think we know that there is much more uh, room to study, uh, more people to study, uh, to go deeper and understand better what is happening. Um, I think we owe it to uh, all the people who stepped up to do the right thing, to fully investigate what happened, and also try to get these people adequate treatment. So I think it's groundbreaking. Um, it, op it, 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 it describes some possibilities, uh, but it leaves the door open uh, for more. Well, and we certainly have, uh, just in React 19, and, and please visit react19.org if you're not familiar with uh, that organization, but we have within React 19 thousands and thousands of people uh, who have reported these types of symptoms. And, you know, we have this initial study, which is better than no study at all, done on just 23 of those people. Uh, certainly, we have the numbers available to make a much, much better and more comprehensive study uh, from the people that that we know uh, have been affected. And, and certainly, based on a combination of censorship and disbelief or unwillingness anyway to believe that uh, these vaccines could potentially cause these issues. There are thousands more out there uh, that don't necessarily have, uh, you know, the connection to groups like React 19 at this point as well. So we certainly have the people out there that could be studied, and I would anticipate uh, to a very large degree would be willing to uh, jump in and uh, and help further the science on this so that uh, we can get the results that we'd really love for these people and a resolution of these uh, symptoms. Definitely. I agree 100%. I think we have the people. Uh, we just need the, we need the money flowing into the research so we can get, uh, take this further. Yeah. And these people deserve that level of, uh, attention and respect uh, for the uh, 
uh, situation that they found themselves in <laughs> very, uh, I think, as you said, the PTSD factor alone is is pretty massive when you go into something thinking that, you know, A, you're doing the right thing, B, it's safe and effective, and then all of a sudden, here you are uh, dealing with these uh, crippling uh, symptoms. It's uh, right. got to be a, an incredibly challenging road. Yeah, like I said, if you asked me, I was, I was just going to say, if you asked me two years ago, before the pandemic, you know, I, I, I was healthy. I was deeply rooted in science, and I still am. Um, but it, it, it opened my eyes uh, a lot. I didn't realize, um, you know, even in my own research, if you're, if you're injured, even in clinical trials, or you're injured after a vaccine, the 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 lack of resources is astounding. It was a shocking, eye-opening thing for me. There are no resources, and in this case, even going to the manufacturers, it was closed doors. I couldn't get help from Pfizer nothing. I got somebody on the phone who said, your symptoms don't fit anything on my list of papers here. That's it. I'm sorry. Go to your doctor. That was it. No interest. They asked me for my records, but that's it. They want the information from you, but there's nothing, no help flowing in my direction. So we can only hope things will change. That's why I do this. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I sure appreciate you speaking out on this. And, and, uh, and really, your expertise has been extremely helpful for this because this, you know, from a layman's uh, perspective, reading through this document was, um, I learned some things and I understood some things, but you've definitely cleared it up for me to a large degree. Um, I want to mention this because we haven't mentioned it yet. And I think this is really important. There are uh, 23 people in this study, and they do represent uh, not just J&J, Pfizer, and Moderna, but also at least one AstraZeneca person as well. So all four of the vaccines, the three that were here in, in America and one in Europe, are represented in these 23. Is that correct? Yeah, I, th I believe Moderna, AstraZeneca. I don't know. I, f I have to remember, but I think... Pfizer. I don't know if J and J was in there, but I know it was Moderna, Pfizer. I have to check that uh, in the demographics, um, but definitely Moderna, Pfizer, and AstraZeneca. Well, and we do know too. You know, on this podcast, if you've been listening uh, prior to this episode, um, I've interviewed uh, what eight or nine people so far uh, that have told their own vaccine injury story on this podcast and and we have at least one from all four of the uh, of those vaccines so and I think that's important because some people do wonder if uh, you know one particular vaccine seems to have a higher uh, number of uh, you know effects than than another and it does seem to be somewhat universal that all four vaccines have led to these types of symptoms right. Sean, what else can we uh, share before we wrap this up? Is there anything else that you feel like we need to discuss? 
No, I think the I think we hit all the you know the most important things. I really just hope that this paper will open up the minds of some of the doctors and neurologists uh, treating the injured, and to the possibility that what's going on with them is real and associated to the vaccine, so that those people can get not only validated and the dignity that they deserve, but also the help that they need desperately, because a lot of people are desperate. We have had people kill themselves because of their symptoms uh, and not and feeling deeply rooted in despair. And we don't want we don't want that. We want to give people hope and a place for support. And we want to get them the help that we need. And that's why I do what I do with the small bouts of energy that I have in a daily basis, I, I, I do my best to raise awareness, um, to fight between the politics, because I think sometimes we're just, I call ourselves the pandemic pariah. We're really caught in the crosshairs of the politics of all of this. And we're the people who just stepped up to do the right thing. And uh, we deserve help. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, you do. And uh, I hope that this paper, if, if nothing else comes of it, that uh, people can present it to their doctors, their healthcare providers, and say, hey, look, <clears throat> we have evidence that uh, this is happening in real people who got these vaccines. And these symptoms that they're talking about here in this paper match my symptoms. And, uh, you know, maybe now we can use this uh, to A, <laughs> acknowledge that, you know, what I'm dealing with probably was a vaccine injury and, and B, uh, you know, maybe now we have some evidence uh, that we need to help uh, figure out a better way to treat it. Right. Exactly. All right, Sean. Hey, I really appreciate your time and your energy on this. I know this is uh, critically important to you and to the react19.org uh, organization. And uh, it's certainly important to me as well. I want to get this word out as much as we possibly can. So thank you for your time today. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. And for those of you listening and watching, uh, please share this. Uh, get this information out there. Share it with anybody that you know that uh, may have been affected by these vaccines, anybody that you know that uh, needs to understand uh, that this, these injuries are real. Uh, and that they are happening and have happened to real people by the thousands. Uh, let's get this word out. These stories need to be told. This informa information needs to be out of the shadows and into the light, and uh, people need to uh, have this in front of them so that they can make informed uh, decisions moving forward on uh, what they need to do for their health. So thank you so much for listening. And uh, if you're watching on video, we appreciate that as well. Uh, we are, uh, we're here to spread the word about these injuries and get the word out. And we need your help to do it. So please don't stay silent. Uh, share this information everywhere you can. Thank you so much for joining in on another episode of the Dearly Discarded Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Dearly Discarded Podcast. We encourage you to help break through the silence and share this episode with your friends and family. It's time for these stories to not only be told, but to be heard. For more information, head to react19.org and dearlydiscardedpod.com. 
The Dearly Discarded Podcast is produced by Jared St. Clair and Michaela Hyde with support from React 19. We'll be back next week with another true story from one who lives it. Until then, join us on Team Humanity. Keep an open mind, seek the truth, and share these stories. Most of all, open your mouth. Silence won't change anything. React 19 needs your support. We're a grassroots nonprofit created by the COVID vaccine injured for the COVID vaccine injured. React 19 provides physical support through scientific research and physician referrals, financial support to those most in need for uncovered medical expenses, and emotional support by growing a community that's focused on compassionate advocacy, hope, fellowship, and improving lives. We can only do these things with your support. Your donation is tax deductible, and any amount is greatly appreciated. You can also sign up for automatic monthly donations. The vaccine injured have been marginalized, censored, and discarded, but they have not been broken. Help them rise to the challenge today. Visit react19.org for more information, or simply text the word REACT to 50155 and donate via text.